You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome. This is Explorers, and today we have Part 3 of Ferdinand Magellan and the Circumnavigation of the World. Last time, we had concluded with Magellan finding and negotiating the strait that would eventually bear his name. It had been a dangerous journey, but Magellan had persevered, overcoming mutiny as well as losing two of his ships. The fleet had exited the strait on November 28, 1520. Everyone knew that they had a difficult journey ahead of them. They had accomplished the first goal, discovering the strait into the Western Sea, but now they had to finish the job, and that meant finding the Spice Islands. The Moluccas were to the west, somewhere over the horizon, but no one really knew for sure where. But before we strike out across the Pacific, let's take stock in the Armada de Molucca. The fleet was now down to just three vessels, Trinidad under Magellan, Victoria under Duarte Barbosa's command, and Concepcion, captained by Juan Serrano. San Antonio had fled back to Spain after the crew mutinied, and the fifth ship, Santiago, had been lost the previous winter in a storm. The ships that remained were firmly under Magellan's control. Of the original 270 men, less than 200 remained, and supplies were limited. Unfortunately for the Armada, the coast of South America, where the strait exits, is a barren and ominous landscape. There were really no good locations to gather food and supplies. The fleet would have to make do with what they had. Magellan and his three ships pushed north along the coast of South America for about three weeks. Then on December 18, 1520, they headed west, riding favorable winds. In short order, land disappeared in their wake. The crew didn't realize it, but it would be almost three months before they would set foot on land again. Magellan's voyage across the Pacific is one that easily gets regulated to a few sentences in the history books. But it might be the most perilous time for the fleet, because we know that the Spice Islands are just not over the horizon. They are thousands and thousands of miles away. The Armada is sailing blindly into the largest body of water in the world. For the fleet, routine sets in, but as time goes by, it becomes clearer and clearer that Asia was a lot further than anyone ever imagined. While the distance across the Pacific is daunting, Magellan and the fleet were actually lucky in some ways. The weather they encountered was excellent, and the winds highly favorable. The fleet ate up huge swaths of ocean every day. Antonio Pigafetta, the Venetian scholar, said that the Armada did not run into a single storm while in the Pacific. That is incredible luck. But things were not perfect for the fleet. Specifically, they did not encounter any habitable land, meaning no fresh food and no fresh water. In late January, and then again in February, the fleet sighted land, but both were just simple atolls, small, uninhabited, and without suitable anchorage. Each time the fleet would have to move on, undoubtedly disappointed. Remember, the fleet had, at most, three months of supplies when they exited the strait in late November, What food they had now was infested with maggots and worms. Water was putrid. Malnutrition was on the horizon. But something even worse had taken hold of the fleet, and that was scurvy. Scurvy is a really nasty disease, and that's being polite about it. Scurvy occurs when the body doesn't get enough vitamin C. Many fruits and vegetables, oranges, lemons, limes, broccoli, to name a few, are typically good sources of vitamin C. But Magellan and his crew knew nothing about vitamin C. They only knew that men were getting weak and sick and dying. Without getting all medical journally on you, 
Vitamin C is critical to manufacturing an enzyme that synthesizes a protein collagen used for connective tissues, skin, ligaments, tendons, bones, that sort of thing. When you don't get enough vitamin C, the collagen fibers break down, especially in bones and dentin, the latter the building blocks of teeth. Thus, a man's gums will swell and begin to bleed once scurvy sets in. It hurts to eat and teeth fall out. As for bones, they become sore and a man's body will ache horribly. Add in malnutrition, because remember, food is running low and you have a deadly combination. As we said, men were getting weak and sick and dying. All told, 30 men in the fleet would succumb to scurvy and many more would suffer from its effects for months. Among the dead was one of the two Patagonians they had captured back in Puerto San Julian. The Patagonian had been baptized into the church and dubbed Paul before his death. The other Patagonian had been aboard San Antonio when it had fled the strait. He too would die of an illness before reaching Spain. The one group of people in the fleet who didn't get sick, however, were the officers. And why is that? Well, remember the quince jelly we talked about at the end of our first episode? It turns out that the quince, which is a fruit, is a good source of vitamin C. And without realizing it, the fleet's officers, who were the only ones with access to the quince jelly, were saved from the effects of scurvy. You don't need a lot of vitamin C to stave off the disease, and the jelly did the trick. For the lucky ones, the quince jelly was literally a lifesaver. The Armada went three months and 20 days without landfall. The fleet traveled 7,000 miles without interruption, the longest uninterrupted sea voyage ever recorded at the time. The good weather and the favorable winds were critical to reaching safety. Any major delay would have claimed more lives in the form of scurvy and malnutrition. But finally, on March 6, 1521, the fleet again sighted land. It was a mountainous island that today we call Rhoda, but they didn't go there. They instead approached a different nearby island, a larger island that is modern-day Guam. Guam is located about 3,000 miles west of Hawaii. It is roughly 200 square miles in size, and it is part of the Mariana Islands. In Magellan's time, it was inhabited by a Polynesian tribe, the Chamaroos, who, upon seeing the fleet, swarmed out to the Armada on their outrigger canoes. The Chamaroos apparently had little, if any, contact with the outside world, and in their society there was little concept of personal property. They basically just took things when they needed them, and that's what they did with the Armada de Maluca. They climbed on the ships, taking whatever caught their fancy. This, of course, led to some fighting, but the two sides quickly worked things out. The natives provided food, and the fleet gave the populace such things as beads and other trinkets. But the Chamaru's concept of private property, or lack thereof, was going to get in the way of things. A group of the natives took possession of Magellan's personal skiff. This, of course, was a grave insult to Magellan. In retaliation, he landed a force of men on the island and burned 40 or 50 homes and killed seven of the natives. Magellan got back his skiff, and he dubbed the place the Island of Thieves. With fresh provisions on board, the fleet moved on on March 9, 1521. Magellan recognized the Chamaroos were trouble, and besides, this was not his goal. He was looking for the Spice Islands. Heading west, the fleet traveled for another week. Then on March 16th, they sighted what is now the Philippines. The Philippines are comprised of over 7,000 islands. They had been visited by Chinese and Arab traders for centuries, 
and the islands tended to be controlled by local kings. The fleet anchored off Homanhon Island, where they prepared themselves a feast to celebrate their arrival. Two days later, a boat with some locals arrived. After the trouble on the island of Thieves, Magellan was wary, but after exchanging gifts with the newcomers, a friendship was struck up. The fleet stayed on the island, gathering what supplies they could and replenishing their own drained bodies, and the natives would come each day, swapping food and supplies for trinkets. Then, in late March, more visitors arrived, but this time something was different. Magellan realized that he could speak to them. And how was that? Remember Magellan's slave, Enrique? I told you he was going to be important to our story, so here you go. Enrique was born in the region, perhaps on the island of Sumatra. It seems the locals spoke a dialect of his native Malay tongue. His ability to converse with the Filipinos was a boon to Magellan, and Enrique's language skills would make him extraordinarily valuable. With Enrique as a translator, Magellan would get the fleet invited to the island of Limasawa, where they struck up a friendship with the local king. It was a small island, and when Magellan asked about acquiring more supplies, he was directed to the nearby island of Cebu. So off to Cebu went the fleet, arriving there on April 6th. It is here that they met the local Raja, or king, a man named Humaban. It is on Cebu where things sort of go off the rails for Magellan, which is kind of sad because Magellan and his crew had overcome so much, and they were literally on the brink of success. Yet this is where Magellan seems to have lost his focus. On Cebu, the Armada would find food and supplies and a friendly populace, and for the first time in months, there were women. The local king, Humaban, had struck up a good relationship with Magellan. Humaban seemed to have generally admired and respected the captain general, and the fleet was even acquiring significant amounts of gold, which was fairly abundant in the region. Food, sex, money, friendly ruler, it was a good gig for the Armada after a year and a half of hardships. So what did Magellan do to muck things up? The answer is that he involved himself in religion and politics. As we've seen, Magellan has never been afraid to evangelize the native peoples he encountered. At Santa Lucia Bay, he converted many of the people to Christianity, and at Puerto San Julian, he had done the same with the Patagonians. On Cebu, he began small. He impressed the locals, including Humaban, by holding mass and telling them about the glories of Christ. Magellan had a great cross erected on a nearby mountaintop. And when the natives inquired about Magellan's god, he was happy to spread the word. Magellan was very gracious with Humaban and the natives at first, saying he didn't want them to become Christians just to curry his favor, and he stated that no one would be discriminated against if they didn't convert. As noted, Humaban and Magellan seemed to have formed a genuinely close relationship, and the Cebuan king was taken with the captain general's stature and power, as well as his religion. So on April 14th, Humaban was baptized into the Christian faith in a lavish ceremony. Many Cebuans joined him, but some of Humaban's chieftains were wary. This led to Magellan to threaten the reluctant chieftains with death if they didn't agree with their king. Most followed suit rather than face the wrath of Magellan and the European guns. 500 people would be baptized with Humaban, and over the next few days, more and more of the populace would join in. In the end, more than 2,200 natives were baptized. We are at the point where Magellan seems to have gotten wrapped up in his power. The mission was now more than just finding the Spice Islands. 
Magellan seemed to have gotten this idea that he could create a Christian kingdom that was loyal to Spain. Perhaps it was his success, and I'm using air quotes around success. I mean, over 2,000 people had just joined your church. How can you not feel like you're doing God's work? Ultimately, Magellan's religious fervor seems to have overcome him. He forced the islanders to destroy their idols and denounce their gods. And then he threatened the local chieftains under Humabon's domain who didn't convert. A village on a neighboring island was burned by Magellan when the locals refused to convert to Christianity. It is a far cry from Magellan's initial steps when he said no one would be punished for not becoming a Christian. Magellan had gotten himself knee-deep in local religion, so now it's time for politics. Some chieftains on the neighboring island of Mactan had refused to submit Christianity and the rule of Humaban. Remember the village Magellan's men had burned a few days ago? That had been on Mactan. Among those resisting the Europeans was a powerful chieftain named Lapu-Lapu. When Magellan heard about Lapu-Lapu, he decided he would make an example of the rebellious warrior. It would be a deadly mistake. Magellan decided that the Spanish would sail to Mactan and confront Lapu-Lapu. The Cebuans were happy to be part of the fight, but Magellan rejected the idea. He wanted to prove to all the locals the might of the Spanish crown and the Christian god. Here, you just get to the point where you want to shake your head. I mean, getting involved in a local war just seemed like a bad idea, and everyone but Magellan seemed to know it. Juan Serrano and the other officers argued against the action. Even Pigafetta, Magellan's most ardent supporter, begged the captain general to rethink his decision. There was just no upside to doing this. But no luck here. Magellan was so stubborn and so sure of himself, you kind of just want to poke him in the eye. But the man did not waver. He was going to attack. Again, you just want to shake your head here. This is Magellan playing God. And now he's clearly letting himself go a little nuts. On April 27, 1521, Magellan sailed to Mactan. Many Cebuans sailed there as well, in their small boats called Balangay. But Magellan instructed them to stay back. He was going to win this one without anyone's assistance. Magellan made an attempt to negotiate with Lapu-Lapu, ordering him to submit to the rule of Humaban in the Kingdom of Spain. But the Mactan chieftain was ready for a fight there would be no submitting on this day. Approximately 60 armed Spanish, under Magellan's command, took longboats to the beach. The water was very shallow, and the longboats were forced to deposit the soldiers roughly 2,000 feet from the shore. That's like seven football fields. The Spanish, in full armor and carrying heavy weapons, were forced to slog their way through the surf toward Lapu-Lapu's village. But most importantly, the Spanish ships were far away, and their big guns would not be able to aid the landing party. Based on previous encounters, Magellan probably expected the natives to flee at the first sign of fighting. Fire your guns, scare everyone, and the enemy runs off. He'd seen it before. He also didn't expect more than maybe a few hundred natives. But he was in for a surprise, because Lapu-Lapu had assembled upwards of 1,500 men. The Mactans put up a fierce resistance, and they did not run despite the gunfire from the Spanish. Perhaps Magellan didn't realize the numbers he was facing, otherwise he may have retreated to the boats a lot earlier. Instead, he advanced out of the water and into the village. His men started to burn the homes, thinking it would terrify the Mactans. Instead, it only got them angry. Lapu-Lapu and his men were armed with spears and arrows and machete-like weapons called bolos. 
The Spanish had armor, but it can only protect you so much. And the Spanish guns were slow to reload and inaccurate. The natives found the Spanish vulnerable in the legs, and their arrows, doused in poison, began to find their mark. Magellan himself was shot in the leg. Seeing the numbers were overwhelming, Magellan finally called for a retreat. But remember, the Spanish longboats are over 2,000 feet away. They had to fight their way through the surf, all the while under a barrage of arrows and spears. In the fighting, Magellan started to weaken as a result of the poison in his leg from the arrow. He and his men were vulnerable. At this point, I'm going to let Pigafetta describe the action. Retreating little by little, and still fighting, and we had already got to a distance of a crossbow shot from the shore, having the water up to our knees, the islanders following and picking up again the spears which they had already cast, and they threw the same spear five or six times. As they knew the captain, they aimed specially at him, and twice they knocked the helmet off his head. He, with a few of us, like a good knight, remained at his post without choosing to retreat further. Thus we fought for more than an hour, until an Indian succeeded in thrusting a cane lance into the captain's face. He then, being irritated, pierced the Indian's breast with his lance, and left it in his body. And trying to draw his sword, he was unable to draw it more than halfway on account of a javelin wound which he had received in the right arm. The enemies, seeing this, all rushed against him, and one of them with a great sword, like a great scimitar, gave him a great blow on the left leg, which brought the captain down on his face. Then the Indians threw themselves upon him and ran through him with lances and scimitars and all the other arms which they had, so that they deprived of life our mirror, light, comfort, and true guide. Pigafetta never wavered in his admiration for Magellan. He added this about the Captain General's death. Quote, this fatal battle was fought on the 27th of April of 1521, on a Saturday, a day which the captain had chosen himself, because he had a special devotion to it. There perished with him eight of our men and four of the Indians who had become Christians. We also had many wounded, amongst whom I must reckon myself. The enemy lost only fifteen men. End quote. The rest of the force reached the longboats and fled to the safety of their ships, with the help of some Cebuans who had come forward when they had seen the peril of the Spanish forces. The battle was over, and Ferdinand Magellan was dead, his own hubris playing a key role in his downfall. No one really wanted this fight, but it seems Magellan had enjoyed playing God a bit too much, and he had paid with his life. Magellan's son, Cristobal Ribello, also died in the melee. In Magellan's orders, there is nothing about evangelizing the natives he encountered, so this seemed like a foolish gambit from the start. Perhaps if Magellan had kept his focus, finding the Spice Islands, he would have lived, but we will never know. Some interesting thoughts about Magellan's death, the most fascinating one being the theory that the fleet basically let him die. Remember, no one from the fleet came and helped Magellan, even after seeing he was in great peril. Pigafetta said they fought in the surf for over an hour. It was the Cebuans who eventually came to the besieged soldiers, no one from the fleet. Perhaps this was true. The fleet saw a way to mutiny without actually mutinying. No one will ever really know, but you seem to get the feeling that the fleet breathed a sigh of relief at Magellan's death. In the aftermath of the battle, the Cebuan chieftain Humaban tried to recover the bodies of Magellan and his fallen comrades, but Lapu-Lapu rejected the requests. Pigafetta reported that Humaban wept bitterly for Magellan. 
Today, the entire area where the battle took place is called the Mach 10 Shrine. There are several elements, including the Magellan Monument, a white classical-looking obelisk that was built by the Spanish in the 1800s to honor the explorer they now claim as their own. The Filipinos added their own memorial, a 66-foot-tall statue of Lapu-Lapu, standing with his shield and bolo knife proudly facing the ocean. It's called the Lapu-Lapu Shrine, and it is pretty awesome-looking. The Magellan Monument houses the Magellan Marker, supposedly the spot where Magellan met his death. You will find two plaques inside. One says, quote, On this spot, Ferdinand Magellan died on April 27, 1521, wounded in an encounter with the soldiers of Lapu-Lapu, chief of Mactan Island. There's a little more on that plaque regarding the rest of Magellan's voyage, but we'll save those details for later. The second plaque says, quote, Here on 27 April 1521, Lapu-Lapu and his men repulsed the Spanish invaders, killing their leader, Ferdinand Magellan. Thus, Lapu-Lapu became the first Filipino to have repelled European aggression, end quote. We often look at exploration and discovery through the lens of the explorers, but it's good to remember that there are other viewpoints to be considered. Today on Mach 10, a reenactment of the historic conflict is put on every year. You can find videos online, and I link to one on the explorerspodcast.com website. Take a look. There are burning huts and fighting, with Magellan and his allies being killed by Lapu-Lapu and his men. It's pretty cool. But back to our tale. With Magellan dead, the Armada de Maluca was free to continue its mission, finding the Spice Islands. Magellan had gotten them this far, but most everyone seemed to agree that he had gone off course on the mission. It was time to fix that. To that end, Duarte Barbosa and Juan Serrano were elected as co-captain generals. They were solid choices, men with experience in command and men the fleet seemed to trust. So the fleet's leadership agreed. It was time to move on and find the Malucas. Unfortunately, it is also time to add another betrayal to our ever-growing list of betrayals in our story. Here we go. According to Magellan's will, his slave Enrique was supposed to be set free on his death. But the Armada's officers knew Enrique's linguistic skills were extremely valuable, and they refused to grant him his freedom. Our sources are conflicted about who angered Enrique. Pigafetta blamed Barbosa, while others put the blame on Serrano. But it really doesn't matter, because once Enrique was denied the freedom that was due to him, he began plotting. And the result will be far worse than anything the fleet had suffered up to this point. Enrique, being the fleet's interpreter, used his position to gain the confidence of Cebu's king, Humaban. What exactly he said to Humaban, we'll never know. Perhaps he convinced the Cebuan king that the Europeans were going to turn on them, now that Magellan was dead. I mean, Enrique only had to tell his own story to demonstrate the deceptiveness of the Spanish. Or perhaps Humaban was angry at the failure of the fleet to support Magellan at the battle on Mactan. There's also the simple theory of greed. The Spanish were no longer invulnerable in the eyes of Humaban, so maybe the Cebuan king just thought it was the perfect time to turn on them and take their stuff. Still another reason may have been political. Humaban may have wanted to curry the favor of Lapu-Lapu, his enemy. The Europeans, after all, were leaving. They no longer had any interest in hanging around Cebu and meddling in local politics. With the Spanish gone, Humaban would no longer have the support of Spanish guns. Again, we really don't know. Perhaps it's a little bit of everything. In the end, we know that Enrique had a willing conspirator in the Cebuan king. So on May 1st, Humaban invited the Spanish to a feast in his village. 
About 30 men, mostly officers, including the newly elected captain generals, Barbosa and Serrano, accepted. Antonio Pigafetta was recovering from a wound he had taken in the recent melee and stayed on board ship. The Sabuans waited until the end of the feast, then they struck. A few of the crew escaped, but it was a slaughter. 27 men were reportedly killed, including Barbosa. The other Captain General, Juan Serrano, was captured, and the Cebuans began to negotiate with the Spanish for his release. But each time the fleet handed over something, the islanders demanded more. This went on and on, until the fleet recognized that Serrano was never going to be released. The fleet was forced to put to sea with the captain standing on the beach, begging his comrades to save him. But it wasn't going to happen. The results of Enrique's plot were devastating. Much of the fleet's leadership was gutted in a single stroke. Barbosa and Serrano were dead, as well as the fleet's astrologer, San Martin. The fleet's last priest, Father Valderrama, had also been captured, and his fate was probably not a pretty one. After the slaughter on Cebu, Enrique would exit the history books. He would never be heard of again, nor would the Cebuan king, Humaban. The next day, May 2nd, with the fleet down to just 115 of the original 270 men, the Armada's leadership made a dramatic decision. They had Concepcion burned. The ship was in dire need of repairs. It was felt that two fully crewed ships was better than three undermanned vessels. João López Carvalho, the Portuguese pilot, was elected as the new captain general. He would command Trinidad. Victoria would be captained by González Gómez de Espinosa, the master-at-arms of Trinidad. Espinosa had proved valuable several times during the expedition, particularly in the two mutinies. Unfortunately, both decisions were poor ones. Espinosa was a soldier, not a sailor, and Carvalho would prove to be in over his head as a leader. Antonio Pigafetta would become essential to the fleet as well, as his diplomatic and linguistic skills would be needed for any future negotiations. So we have the Armada de Maluca, now just two ships, searching for the Spice Islands. Five islands among thousands. The Armada had lost its leader, Magellan, and those who would have stepped into the power vacuum had been killed on Cebu. Before we continue with the Armada, we need to take a trip to Spain. That's because on May 6, 1521, just as the Armada was limping through the Philippine Islands, some 8,000 miles away, San Antonio arrived in Seville. Fifty-five men had survived the return voyage. In a curious decision, Alvera de Mesquita, Magellan's relative and deposed commander of the ship, had not been killed. The survivors of San Antonio, save for Mesquita, spun a tale rife with anti-Magellan and anti-Portuguese embellishments. Magellan and Mesquita were cast as villains, torturing and executing Spanish officers, abandoning Cartagena and a priest on an island. Mesquita had signed a confession to these sins, although he did it after being tortured by the mutineers. Estevo Gomez and the other mutineers claimed that they had been abandoned by Magellan while in the strait. They testified that they had gone to the rendezvous location, but no one was there and there were no markers or signals for San Antonio to follow. Unsure of what to do, they had gone back to Spain, but not before leaving the appropriate markers for Magellan in case he ever returned. The one thing they didn't do was to try and rescue Cartagena and the priest who had been abandoned at Puerto San Julian. If they had done that, they might have come home as heroes. Instead, they were viewed with suspicion, especially when Mesquita told his side of the story. 
But in the end, it was more than 50 voices against one, and the House of Trade fell in with the mutineers, even if no one quite bought the entire story. The House of Trade, after all, had the location of the strait. That was valuable information, and they no doubt felt they could exploit it. Mosquito would be put into prison, remaining there for more than a year, and Magellan's wife, now his widow, but she didn't know it, had her finances cut off, and she was put under house arrest. As for the Armada de Maluca, everyone assumed it was lost. But we know better. The fleet is not lost, and even though Magellan has met his demise, we are not going to abandon the fleet either. This story is not just about Ferdinand Magellan, but it is about the circumnavigation of the world. Next time, we will conclude our extraordinary tale as Victoria and Trinidad have to not only search out the Spice Islands, but they have to return home to Spain. It is a thrilling and harrowing tale that you do not want to miss. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.